Well, last week we were digging into Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 26, to find out what biblical groaning really looks like. And we said, what makes biblical groaning biblical? What sets it apart from the groaning that's just going on all around us? Everybody groans. To be human is to groan. It's one of those things that sets us apart from the rest of creation and validates our humanity as created in the image of God. Houseplants don't groan. Aardvarks don't groan. Why do we groan? Why do we, out of all creation, have this this sense of right and wrong and justice and things aren't right and we, and we so much want to connect the dots and we want to have explanations and we want to see things resolved. We have a sense that is unlike anything else in creation. We groan. But we said what sets apart the groaning of Christians is not that we don't groan, but we groan a threefold cord of groaning. Groaning hoping and waiting, groaning, hoping, waiting, groaning, hoping, waiting, groaning, hoping, waiting. And folks, listen, don't buy into the lie you could see on TV. The longer you walk with the Lord, the groaning doesn't stop. Sometimes you start groaning even more because the more you know God, the more your heart breaks over the same things that his heart breaks over and the world is getting worse. Your groaning just may and perhaps should increase, but it should never dominate your life. And leave you unable to go on because these two other cords of hoping and waiting better be woven into your groaning. But did you find yourself last week at all? I said this so many times. We've got a threefold cord of groaning, hoping, waiting. But did you find yourself at all saying, great, Brad. So in the midst of all my groaning, I'm supposed to be on tiptoe, gripping my heavenly father's hand, waiting and hoping, but waiting and hoping for what? That's what I want us to answer today. I want to unpack a little more and show you more fully what it is we're to be hoping and waiting for in the midst of our groaning. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 8. And I want to read for you again, verses 18 to 26. I'm not going to read any new verses that we didn't look at last week. But I want to walk back through the same verses and bring out a little more of what are we hoping and waiting for. Follow along, please, as I read in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans 
and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now see right there, no, notice, he doesn't say, but if you're a Christian and you got God's Spirit, no more groaning. Not at all. Look what he says in verse 23. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, what I want to do is walk you back through the same verses we dug into last week. I want to walk you back through these very same verses, and I want to help you get a better sense of what do these two chords of hoping and waiting look like that are supposed to be wrapped around my groaning? What are they made up of? What's the fabric of these two chords? What is it that they consist of? What is it that I'm grabbing hold on? Brad, if I, if I need these two cords, where am I looking? What am I grabbing onto? That's what I want to answer for you today. So let's start in verse 18 and 19 again. Look at verse 18 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And make a note there. There's a glory. We think about God and glory There's a glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God? Us. Us, Christians. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ and your faith is in Christ for salvation, he's talking about you. And what he's saying is there is a greater fuller revelation coming of glory in you that we can't see yet. It's hidden. It has not been unveiled yet. There's something coming that we cannot see, that we do not even sense that much. We are most aware of our weakness and frailties and flawed. But he says, there's a revelation, the revealing of the sons of God that is coming what we're going to be, what we're going to look like when we fully share in the glory of God is hidden. That's why we look just as weak and flawed as any other human being alive today. See, the mistake that gets made by the people on TV and selling best-selling books is like, oh man, you put your faith in Jesus and you get this formula right and the world will recognize you because you're driving the nicest cars, living in the nicest houses, cancer doesn't touch you, unemployment doesn't touch you, rebellious kids doesn't touch you, bad marriage doesn't touch you. You get this right and whoo, everything's bing, bang, boom, just sweet. And the world says, whoa, check it out. I want some of that. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
at all. We, many times, look just as flawed and weak. We get cancer. We lose our jobs like everybody else. Kids rebel like other kids. Marriages are flawed and frayed and have struggles like everybody else. In fact, sometimes we even look worse. You know why? Because, I don't have time to go there now, but I want you to write this down. It's not in the outline, but write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, describes what the average Christian looks like. It's a resume for Christians. You want to know what Christians look like? In general, most often, there are exceptions, but in general, most often, who are the people that put their trust in Christ? Who are the people that cry out for mercy? Who are the people that sense they have a need of a savior? Who are the people that say, I can't do this on my own. I need a God and his savior, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter one says, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the weak things of this world, the despised things of this world, the things that are not. Could this get any more flat, unflattering? You're just, when, when you think about Christians today, you're just not. You're not it. You're not what the world thinks about. You're, you don't have that image. You don't have that thing going on. Whatever the world says is it, you're not. Why does God do it that way? He says, so that he can put to shame the things that are. The things the world makes so much of, he wants to put that to shame by choosing the weak, the foolish, the despised, those that are not. That no flesh may glory in his presence. We look just as flawed and weak as every other human alive, sometimes even worse. And so we groan. We groan. But now I want you to notice the second thing in verse 18 and 19. All of creation, get this, all of creation. Think about it. Trees, grass, clouds, lakes, sheep, cows, monkeys, horses, sun, moon, stars. All of creation, Romans 8 tells us, is eagerly waiting and looking for the revealing of the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, what they will be like, what this is gonna look like. See, we most often in this life, we've got it turned around. I'm not saying it's wrong, but so often we look to creation and we're moved by creation, rightly so, because creation is an extension of our God. It's some of his beauty, some of his power, some of his wonder. We say, oh, we gasp. In many, even in a sin-cursed world, we gasp over creation very often. But get this. Romans 8, 18 and 19 are saying creation right now that is groaning looks to us and is waiting to see the revealing of the sons of God, the glory and what God's going to do in us in our fullness. It's similar to that verse in the Bible that says the angels long to look into a salvation they can't relate to. Do you know angels can't relate to redemption and salvation? God chose to save no angels. When the angels rebelled and a third of the heavenly spirits rebelled, they were thrown down with Satan and their demons now. Angels, both good and bad, 
long to look into this thing called salvation. They can't even relate to it, what he's done for us through his son. And this likewise says creation is on tiptoe, longing and waiting to see what God is going to do in us. The glory revealed in us. The revealing of the sons of God. In other words, they're going to be as sad as you look, as weak and flawed and pathetic, there is going to be a great coming out party like that debutante that's introduced to the community. I know that doesn't really happen that much, but say we're in deep south and it still happens. And everyone thinks, oh, remember when she was just that gangly girl and just look at her now. Look who she's become. Look what she's like. That's what's going to happen with us. We're going to be introduced to all the universe and all of creation is going to gasp and say, that's them? That's those human beings that just bumbled and stumbled along? Oh my, the revealing of the sons of God. So all of creation right now longs and waits and is saying, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? For the revealing of the sons of God. That's why the word eagerly is tucked in front of the word waiting every time it's used in this passage three times. But now I want you to look at something else in in verse 20. Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And who did we say last week? The him. The pronoun him is in reference to who? Who is that referring to? Say it louder. Say it again. It's not Satan, it's not Adam, it's not any other created being. God Almighty himself is sovereign and in control even over evil and wickedness while not being the author of sin. He is sovereign over sin. And right now where we are, we are due to his own sovereign plan that he, not Satan, not Adam, not any other created being, has subjected this creation right now to futility in hope. So there's two things I want you to see from verse 20. Two inescapable things that are woven right into the fabric of creation right now. Futility and hope. And you better get a grip on both of them. Oh, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you respond to what's going on right now. If you could see that both futility or frustration, that's a synonym for futility. I'm just frustrated. It just doesn't seem to go right. And hope. Futility and hope are built right into all of creation right now at this moment, and God did it. That explains a lot, folks. That's why there is a fundamental frustration in everything you try to do in this life right now. Have you noticed that? In your marriage, in parenting, in that job, in church. Every single thing you seek to do. And the mistake I think that Christians too often make is they start to learn good biblical truth and principles about marriage. Yay, I wish you would. And they start to put it into practice. Yay, I wish more would. Here's the misstep. And they think if I'll just do what God says about marriage, I won't be frustrated anymore. And we'll have this perfect marriage. Eh. There is a fundamental frustration that's built right into all of creation right now. He says he subjected it to futility. And that's why even in the best moments, right? Even in the best moments. And you think about that even as I say that. How many moments? I could probably count on one hand. 
How many moments do you really have in life where you say, oh, it doesn't get any better than this? You could probably count them on one hand. Don't hear me saying you've had no good times. But would not it be true that you have great moments, but so often right on the edges of that great moment in your mind, it's flittering around. Oh, but if only grandpa could have been here for today for the wedding. Oh, if only grandma could have seen the birth. Oh, if only so-and-so could have walked her down the aisle. Oh, if only aunt so-and-so hadn't told uncle so-and-so what they did and they don't speak now at Christmas and they could all. There's always a bit of frustration and futility that rumbles around the edges of even our best moments. It bleeds through, even in the best moments. So here, I don't want you to think this is a big bummer. Like, I want to send you out of here depressed. Everyone needs Prozac after today. Because I'm trying to rob you of anything good. Oh, no, 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 no. Stay with me. I think this could set some of you free who are sitting right here. And it could so help your spouse. If you could realize, even in the best marriage... There will always be a measure of frustration and futility. It'll never just seem, finally we've arrived. It's right. Done. Got it. Move on to other things. No. In the best children, there's still a sense of, in the best health scenarios, in the best job, in the best church. That's why some people just go from church to church to church to church to church. I know there's heinous, totally unbiblical, awful things that sometimes happen in churches, and you should leave. But in most cases, it's just this right here. A bit of frustration and futility. News alert, it's built right into the best church. It's built right into the best marriage. It's built right into the best children, the best health. Now, don't make a mistake with what you do with that next. Stay with me. Don't conclude, what a cruel God. What a killjoy. Because who has done this? Who subjected all of this to futility? The best marriage, best kids, best health, best church, best whatever, still has a measure of frustration and futility. Who did all that? Why? The last word in verse 20 says, in hope. You know what the hope is? Here's the deal. Everything in this world, nothing in this world was designed to fully satisfy you. He doesn't want you to sink your teeth into that best friend or that marriage or those kids or your health or that job and settle in and say, yes, I could stay here forever. This is so good. This futility and frustration was designed by God to cause you to loosen your grip on the things of this world. Enjoy and thank him for whatever is right to whatever measure it is right but you're looking and hoping for something better and beyond. Better. Get this. That's why C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world fully satisfies, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world, another time, another place, another person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Oh, listen to me. He's your perfect bridegroom. That's the perfect marriage. And if you're a Christian, you're engaged to him. It's coming. But this guy you have right now, it ain't happening. (laughs) But that would really help you, ladies, if you just thought, okie dokie, this is a little better. It's like two steps forward, three steps back. But praise God, I got the perfect husband coming. And it's not going to happen now. I've got the perfect wife coming. And it's not going to happen now. 
I've got that perfect sense of all is well, all is right, but it's not these kids right now. How that would help us, would it not? We put too much pressure on the things of this life, trying to grab all the gusto we can and saying, I gotta be fully satisfied. You will never be fully satisfied with anything in this world because God has subjected it to futility in hope because something better is coming. He doesn't want you to settle down here and now. He wants you to hope and look, hope and look. These are birth pangs right now that are gonna birth something so much better. Now, let me, let me point out one aspect of what is it that's coming that's better. What is this passage lifting up and pointing us to and saying, hope in this, hope in this? It's that we're gonna get glorified redeemed, perfect, new bodies. And I think too often the church doesn't talk about this enough. I understand there's heaven and hell, eternity is at stake, so most often we talk about souls. Very good. But the Bible does say he is going to redeem, restore, renew our physical bodies and give you a glorified body like His, you're not gonna float around as a spirit being like nothing. You're getting a glorified body. Look at it in in Romans 8, verse 23. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our, say it, body. That verse is not talking about your soul. There's plenty of verses that use the word redeemed and redemption is talking about your soul. He's talking about your Body. So get this, here's the point that I want to make. Sometimes we can over-spiritualize things and think, because God has saved my soul, I shouldn't care about my body. I shouldn't care about how hard this is right now. I shouldn't care about the, I shouldn't be complaining. I shouldn't long for a, for a different, no, no, no. This verse is telling it's okay. In fact, it would be odd if you didn't to some degree long for and eagerly hope for a redeemed body, a body that doesn't hurt, a body. It's, it's not wrong. It's right for you to long for being set free from that wheelchair and being set free from those crutches and being set free from the cortisone shots and the Tylenol. It's right for you to long to be set free from cancer and lupus and Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's disease and chromosomal disorders and every other thing in this world that breaks our bodies down. It's right to long for, I wish I could see, I wish I could hear, I wish I could run, I wish I had the energy that I used to have or some of you, you were born with disabilities and limitations. You've never heard, you've never seen. And God's word says it's coming. You are going to see and hear and run and leap and be free from all that ravages and eats at and breaks down our body. You're getting a new, glorified, redeemed, perfect body like Jesus Christ has right now. Say, wow. And so listen to me, we have found the fountain of youth. Get off the internet, it's not that juice, it's not that liquid, it's not that powder, it's not oil of Olay. We found the fountain of youth and his name is Jesus Christ. You got a new body coming. And that's the same thing that Paul was driving home when he said to the Christians at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. When he said, brothers, I tell you this, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ rose from the dead, he conquered death and guaranteed you a new, perfect, glorified body. And we long for it. We hope for it. We wait on it. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Folks, read the gospels towards the end after the resurrection. He had the ability to keep them from knowing who he was, but, off, but usually when he spoke, he said, Mary, it's like, she knew it was Jesus. On the road in Luke 24, he, he talked with them, but then when they ate a meal together and he started to break the bread, they were like, it's Jesus. He had a real body. It was pretty cool. He just showed up in rooms because he didn't have to go through doorways. Just, bing, there he is. But he had a body. He ate fish. He ate. Mary clung to his feet. You could grab onto something. It was a real but glorified, not time-bound, space-limited body, and we're getting one. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I do like that I'm not going to hell, but it's okay to emphasize this too because it's in the Bible. He saved your soul from hell and has guaranteed you a glorified, perfect, redeemed body like his. And the other thing you see in the Bible is there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We are going to run and leap and do calisthenics. I'm going to do full backflips that I could never do in this life. We're going we're gonna to have the best of time. We are going to celebrate whatever it is that you think is fun, that you delight in. Take it up a thousand times and it's going to be happening. We are not going to be sitting there with little harps plucking along. New heaven and new earth. If you love to fish, fishing like you've never seen. They just jump on your bait on their own and you're just reeling them in. If you love to hunt bucks with racks big as this room, just stand right in front of you and look at you and say, shoot me. It's just... Whatever you love, it's going to be like, oh, my goodness. And I can chase that buck on foot because I got a glorified, perfect body. Tackle it, wrestle it to the ground. Big fun. But in the midst of so much sorrow and sickness and confusion, how do you keep from forgetting about this great hope? Oh, you know, you walk out of a service like this and just forget again. You just forget again. You just, what can we do to not forget what's coming in the midst of so much futility and frustration and sickness and disease and death and bad emails and bad news and awkward relationships and conflict and hurt? And what can keep us remembering? I'll tell you one of the things he designed to help us to remember is taking the Lord's Supper, celebrating communion together. Because we're supposed to remember when Jesus 
when Jesus' body was broken for us, yes, it was broken that our sins could be forgiven, but it was also broken so that our bodies could be made new and glorious like his. And on that last supper and night with his disciples, he signaled to them and pointed them to something ahead, a bigger, better, huge supper that's coming when he said, as you taste this, there's a day coming. He says, I'm not going to do this again with you ever until we all do it together in the kingdom. Look at it with me in Luke 22. Luke 22, turn in your Bibles. Luke 22, beginning of verse 14. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is already here. He he inaugurated it. He kicked it off when he came. But we don't have the fullness of the kingdom. We don't see it in all its glory. And that's what he's saying. In the fullness of the kingdom on that great day, I'm going to do this again with you. I say to you, I'll no longer eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup. He gave thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, he's pointing towards a day of where all this is headed. I want to show you some of that. I want to show you some of where, where is all this three-fold cold of groaning, waiting, hoping, headed. Where is it all headed? Skip over to Revelation 19. And I want you to see it. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. And I want to read this for you as our... As our servants come, we're going to help and serve the Lord's Supper with me today. Go ahead and come if you're going to help serve the Lord's Supper today. As I read Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6, show you where we're headed. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let's say that together. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Say it again. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. There's a wedding supper. You're engaged right now. Never forget that. Your engagement ring, folks, is the Holy Spirit. He's already given you the first fruits of the Spirit, but you haven't experienced the fullness of it. You are engaged, regardless of married or single. You may be still living and longing and groaning, wishing someone in this world would choose you. Let me encourage you. There's someone that's already chosen you. You have a fiancé 
who loves you more than anyone in this world, who's given you a gorgeous engagement ring of the first fruits of the Spirit, and there is someone planning a wedding day for you and planning a banquet and a reception dinner like nothing in this world that would blow your mind. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse eight, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so right now it seems quite pathetic and sad even when we take communion. But I'm not embarrassed. I don't want it to be great. That's why it's a little plastic cup and it's not even real wine. It's a, it's a little piece of bread that's pretty nasty. It's not supposed to satisfy you now. It just gives you a foretaste, a sense of what's coming. There is a marriage supper of the Lamb coming where we will be together, not just with Florence or Newport or a few other churches. There will be people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Every believer from every nation in the world will be gathered together with our Savior face to face to celebrate with Him forever. I want you to take that thing that most frustrates you right now in this life and I want you to just place it in the context of there is a sovereign God that right now has designed this frustration for my good to cause me to hope and long for this day that's coming where he will make all things right. My marriage doesn't have to be perfect. My kids don't have to be perfect. My job doesn't have to be perfect. My church doesn't have to be perfect. My health doesn't have to be perfect. My finances don't have to be perfect. My retirement doesn't have to be perfect. I can rest in something coming that's better and beyond better and beyond and as you understand that it enables you to persevere to endure in that marriage to endure in that singleness to endure in that job that is not all you'd hope for to endure in those finances that are less than you wish they were to endure with that retirement plan that's not accumulating like you hoped it would to stay in that relationship and not give up when it's just still messy and it's still hard and it still feels raw knowing there's hope and I'm not alone and I'm engaged and I've got a bridegroom that sings over me and loves me and is preparing a place for me for eternity that includes a glorified, new, perfect body. And it's not just a new body that we're getting. God's word tells us there's a whole bunch of new stuff. And I want you to hear a little bit of that other new. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to Revelation song. A new heaven and a new earth along with our new body. And one of the best parts about that is this new heaven and new earth we will experience more fully. Is God with us now? Oh, yes. Emmanuel, God with us. But, folks, not like it's going to be. He says the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven and a new earth. And he says, I will be with you as your God. You will be my people. He's going to pitch his tent in our midst. 
Listen to what it says in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven, and the first earth had passed away. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. Does that remind you of any other passage? In John 19, where Christ on the cross said, it is finished. He had done everything necessary to make Revelation 21 possible. And then God himself is going to say, everything I promised, everything I said about new heaven, new earth, new body, it will be done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I want you to persevere. God wants us to persevere, to endure, knowing you're gripping the hand of a good, sovereign, wise, loving Father. So get on tiptoe. Get eyes wide again, knowing this is not it. Frustration, oh yes. Futility, oh yes. Things that are wrong, yes, 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 yes. But you've not been abandoned. You're engaged you got an engagement ring, and you've got a bridegroom who is coming back to get you. Go rejoicing in our Savior.